and welcome to 13, a bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Associate Professor of English, Jennifer Bryce. Professor Bryce specializes in creative nonfiction, science and nature writing, travel writing, and literature of the North. Her written works include Unlearning to Fly, published in 2007 by the University of Nebraska and reprinted by Bison Books in 2010. Her book, The Last Settlers, was published in 1998, and she has written a number of essays published in American Nature Writing, the Gettysburg Review, the Sonara Review, and others. Professor Bryce earned her bachelor's degree from Smith College and a Master of Fine Arts from the University of Alaska Fairbanks. In addition to her teaching at Colgate, Professor Bryce is also the director of the Living Writers Program, director of the Colgate Writers Conference, and the Upstate Institute Advisory Board. Professor Bryce, welcome to 13. Thank you for having me. I feel like any interview with you um, needs to start off with the Colgate Living Writers series. And for those unaware of what living writers may be, can you take a moment and explain what it's all about? I would love to do that. The course actually began in 1980. It was run by Frederick Bush, the famous writer and longtime professor of English at, at Colgate. Mm -hmm. He invented this course. It's a, it's a model that other universities have adopted since, but it was his brainchild. The idea of the course, which is now titled English 360, um, is that the students read roughly a book a week mm -hmm talk about it on Tuesday afternoon with the professor, and on Thursday afternoon, the writer comes to campus, joins the class, answers the students' prepared questions about the book, and then gives a public reading or talk. It's a fabulous model. Um, there are lots and lots of students at Colgate who've been through the Living Writers course with Fred Bush who come up to me at reunion or other events and say, I remember, I remember taking Living Writers with Fred Bush. As a matter of fact, the writer who's coming for our series next week, Dan Slater, that's September 26th, is a 2000 alum from Colgate who took Living Writers with Fred Bush. Ah, what a neat story. Uh, it's a great story. Yeah. He went to law school, then he went to work as a legal affairs reporter for the Wall Street Journal, left the Wall Street Journal and started writing book-length narrative nonfiction. So he's coming for our course and series next week um, to talk about his newest book, Wolf Boys. Anyway, Fred Bush retired in the early 2000s and tragically died a few years later. In 2009, Jane Pynchon asked me how I would feel about restarting the course with her. The two of us team taught it until um, 2015 when Jane retired. Um, we taught the course together. It was a huge pleasure, enormously fun, and I think, I think really good for the students, too, to have a literary scholar, as Jane is, and a writer in the room, we brought two completely different perspectives. A lot of times we saw things the same way. There were times when we disagreed completely right in front of the students. So we got to model what it is to have a respectful conversation with somebody you, you love and admire, um, but perhaps disagree with about the interpretation of a piece of writing. 
And then, of course, on Thursday, we'd have the writer come in and say something completely different. But, but that's part of the joy of the course. In 2010, then Colgate president Jeff Herbst called us up. I was in London. Remember, it was a three-way conversation with Jeff and Jane and Hamilton and me in London and asked us if we would be willing to think about um, offering an online version of Living Writers for Alumni and Parents. We started that in the fall of 2010. There were 60 people. We had a WordPress blog. We live streamed the readings. We had a little online discussion, and then that was that was it. Short version in the last not nine years since we started Living Writers Online. The program has grown to uh, nearly 650 people. This year, there's an edX um, course-like platform that people can use, parents, alumni, but also Hamilton community members to, to access reviews and articles about the books and authors, but also podcasts that I made over the summer with yes. colleagues yeah. talking about the books. So how do you go about selecting all of the works that are part of Living Writers? I mean, there, there are a number of books uh, each year, and uh, I'm just curious about the selection process. Like, what goes into that? I have an enormous file <laughs> with all the names of, of writers that people have suggested and the names that come to me. I read reviews like crazy. I'm a total book review junkie. Um, whenever I meet a writer, whenever a writer comes for Living Writers, I ask them who they would recommend. I ask my colleagues. I ask the O'Connor Fellows, the postgraduate fellows who teach creative writing in the English department every year for suggestions. Um, I always um, ask them not only for suggestions about good books, but also suggestions for writers who would be good at talking to, to undergraduate students. Mm. But then the process of putting together the series every year is a little bit like flower arranging. And it's a little bit it, like flower arranging in that it's it's impossible to to actual there's no formula for it it's sort of like well, what's it honestly what's in bloom at this moment mm -hmm. what looks good with something else um, because I'm working with individual faculty members every year instead of working with just with Jane on the whole series now I pull in a faculty member from the English department or elsewhere in the university to help me with every author. That's that's wonderful in every way, but it makes it tricky to to create a series that's thematically unified. Um, if say I'm going to Danny Barreto in LGBTQ studies and David McCabe in philosophy helped me last year to bring an Irish writer, uh, an alum of Colgate who's really interested in horse racing, as right. David McCabe is interested in horse racing. So so it's harder to create a thematic unity, although often uh, I, I should say a, a theme emerges. This year, the series um, contains a lot of books with writing about uh, about siblings, sibling relationships. Mm. There are a lot of twins in the series this year, in the books that I've chose for the series this year. I do have a limited budget, so I think about, okay, are there one or two people who are going to be awfully expensive to bring? And, and I, I usually invite them first, and then I know how much I have left in the budget. Um, and, you know, think about diversity, think about a, 
a range of books. I think about the length of the books since mm -hmm. the students will be reading one a week. I like variety. No thousand word tomes. No thousand word tomes. No. Or pages, my, my thousand pages. Exactly. <laughs> my colleague C.J. Hauser is teaching a, a Booker Prize course this fall and she's teaching all the books on the on the Booker shortlist and there is a 998 page novel it's on the Booker week. shortlist. Yes, exactly. <laughs> to, to be really honest, about 300 pages is my limit for, for living writers, although I've exceeded that once in a while. Um, I, I like a range of genres. I like to have short stories and novels, memoirs, at least one poetry collection on the list if I can swing it. Gender balance matters. That's, so, that, so that's partly how it comes together. But there, there, are, there are serendipitous things that happen every year. Um, in the fall of 2014, I had a list of eight or nine writers. The list felt pretty complete to me. I had a little bit of money left in the budget, but really not very much. And my colleague, Kezia Page, said, you know, there's this guy, Marlon James, who um, is doing some pretty interesting novels about the Caribbean. If you were to bring him, it would be great. be great for my teaching. And I said, oh, let me just write to him and see if he'd come for for not very much money because I don't have very much left in the budget. He said, yes, he came. He was absolutely fabulous. And in the spring, he won the Booker Prize oh. for his most recent book. And now he's famous. And, and we got him before he was famous. Right. Nice. Well, I'll put you on the spot a little bit too, kind of coming off of that. So throughout the years, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like there's a decided avoidance of genre work like science fiction or um, fantasy, mystery, that types of things. Ooh, you are putting will, me on this spot. I know. <laughs> will we get to meet the modern Agatha Christie or J.R.R. Tolkien at some point? Two answers to that. The, the first one is the work really has to be literary. It, it just does. There are so many other pots of money and lecture series all over the university to bring people who are writing different kinds of books. This this is the English department. This is this is where creative writing lives. All of us who teach creative writing at Colgate um, teach what what we think of as as writing that is language driven. It's it's all about words and sentences and you know, it's not that plot is uninteresting, but it's not it's not the main thing. John Banville was here yesterday, and and um, every sentence that came out of his mouth in conversation with the students and in his public reading was brilliant. But he kept saying over and over and over again that he, the world comes to him through language. He apprehends the world through language. He doesn't even begin to make sense of his life until he makes. Um, sentences about it. So that's the, that's the kind of writing we're all interested in. Um, it, certainly some of that work is, some of it sells really well. Um, Kim Edwards, Colgate alum, uh, came a few years ago for her novel, I'm just not. I'm just going to draw a blank here about the title of it. But it was a huge 
huge bestseller, huge New York Times bestseller, her first, her first novel for, for many weeks. Um, so some of the writing is best-selling writing, but it's not genre writing per se. That said, having said all of those things, there are some genre writers who I think are are really fabulous and who I would give my eye teeth to bring. Uh, Stephen King is one of them, who's just a really, really great craftsman. I think he doesn't. There, there are writers who just don't do these series, and he's he's one of, he, who just don't do public readings, and he's he's one of them. Um, so. So I, I wouldn't rule it out completely, but it just feels like there are so many great literary writers out there um, that, that every year I, I'm in despair about the number we yeah. couldn't invite. It's a hard job. So how um, I'm, I'm curious, too, in, in all of your time teaching the Living Writers course, is there any one author that you were most excited to meet to discuss their work? Who was it and, and why? Oh, golly, that's such a hard question. You know what? There were so many. It seems like it, you could ask me that question about every year, and sure. I could tell you who I'm most excited about. In some ways, it's my, my excitement can be counterproductive because if there's a writer I'm really in awe of, yeah. my awe gets in the way <laughs> a little bit um, when, I, when I go to interview them. I was really nervous about John Banville coming. He's one of the greatest writers in the world, a guy who's mentioned always in the same breath with James Joyce, Henry James, Proust, Nabokov, Samuel Beckett. He's always on lists of potential Nobel Prize winners. He's a genius. He's extraordinary. He's a guy who never went to the university, but who, you know, has 10 universities in his, in his brain. Um, and, and it was completely human and warm and friendly and down to earth and delighted to be here and wowed by our students. Some of your classes at Colgate include Introduction to Creative Writing, Nonfiction, Nonfiction Prose One, and an Advanced Creative Writing Workshop. What's the most common mistake you find in the liter literary work of young writers? That's a great question. I love that question. Thanks. And you know what? This is a question that might in some way cut to your job working with faculty members to try to get the word out about their work and their research and whatever's going on in their lives that is exciting. This is the problem I'm going to name is is mostly uh, endemic to creative nonfiction writing, to writing nonfiction, because Nonfiction writers almost always, not always, but almost always are writing in the first person singular. Occasionally they write in the third person. You see guys like John Krakauer, for instance, or Dan Slater, who's coming mm -hmm. for Living Writers next week, um, who write within a, you know, the omniscient third person narrator. But they're usually doing journalism. People who write memoirs and essays are writing in the first person singular. I is the subject. I is often... The object as well. I is often the thing that they are exploring. The self is what they're exploring. But because they know who they are, whenever they say I, they have they have this you know sense. I I, I am a fifty six year old woman who was born and raised in Fairbanks, Alaska, and has three children and two dogs and likes to ski. And but you know we know who we are. And so we say I in an essay. 
and young writers are especially prone to this. They say I in an essay, and they just assume that whoever reads this essay knows who that person is. So they don't introduce themselves. They don't turn themselves into a character on the page that would be interesting. I always say this to my students. You, you have to try to be interesting to the 60-year-old retiree in Coral Gables, Florida, who's never met you, never met your family, never even heard of Colgate University. So, you know, when you say, I hate chocolate ice cream, well, <laughs> that woman in Coral Gables, Florida says, well, why should I care if some 18-year-old in Hamilton, New York, hates chocolate ice cream? You have to... You have to tell me who you are first. In your memoir, Unlearning to Fly, you write, In the East, I rarely tell people that I'm from Alaska or that I'm a pilot. If they find out on their own, they get the wrong idea. So now, about 13 years or so after writing that, do you still feel, <laughs> do you still feel that way? I actually can't remember what the wrong idea is that they get. Wow. That's a, that's a sign... When, when somebody can read you a sentence you wrote and you actually don't recognize it, it's a, that's, that's kind of an interesting sign, sign, to write a, sign, sign that it's time to write a new book, if nothing <laughs> else. Um, I often don't tell people about Alaska because it bores me, to be really honest. Mm. The, the, the answer, uh, what they say back to me, leads to a conversation that I find boring. People say, oh, Alaska. I've always wanted to go to Alaska. <laughs> Is it really cold there? Is it really dark in the winter? Um, and, you know, the answer to those things is yes. Yes, it's cold <laughs> and it's you dark in the winter. Right? It's also home. You know, in some ways, the, the answer to that question is related to what um, what we were just talking about. You know, the the... Fairbanks is my hometown. It's it's so much of a piece of who I am, and that that um, I I have trouble thinking about it objectively. And um, also, I I don't like small talk very much. Mm. So they're complicated things, and and not for short answers. Maybe mm. you wrote another book titled <laughs> The Last Settlers. That examines the lives of, lives of two 20th century pioneer families in the Alaskan wilderness. One Amazon review of the book says, This is one of the finest books I have read about Alaska. This is a spare, unsentimental portrait of what life in Alaska is really like, both beautiful and harsh. This is not a book that romanticizes homesteading or the poverty of these homesteaders' lives. Instead, they come through the Bryce's crystalline prose, and that's an awkward phrasing, but um, of her use of defining detail. Why do you think, this is uh, based on that, why do you think there's a general leaning to romanticizing homesteading, and did you romanticize it before writing the book? It's a great question. I just want to say, by the way, that uh, I, I don't think that that review is by my mother. I don't <laughs> think it's by anybody I'm related to. I don't think I realized it was out there. Um, I, I think we tend to romanticize or sentimentalize what's unfamiliar to us, um, what, what's strange to us. And maybe that's partly why I'm reluctant to have that conversation about Alaska, because it, it feels to me as if people might be just saying the polite thing, oh, Alaska, I've always wanted to go there. 
what's it like? And I maybe imagine that they have a, a sense of a, the mythic place, and um, that's not my home. The myth is not my home, and um, and it feels like it would take a long time to explain what what the what my home is like, which I've tried to do in these in these two books. I I think again, I think we we sentimentalize what we don't know, but it's so easy actually to to romanticize living in the wilderness. I mean, this the, these people lived in the 1980s as if it was the 19th century. They lived without running water. They lived without electricity. Um, one of the families I interviewed lived in in such a remote place that um, they could only get there by plane, and that meant that they had to go uh, by float plane in the summer or ski plane in the winter. And in Alaska, that means there are probably conservatively five months of the year when you, you couldn't do either one because the lake wasn't frozen enough for landing on a ski plane and it wasn't uh, melted enough for landing on a float plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, a, a slip with an axe or a case of appendicitis could have killed those those people. That sense that you might just, um, you know, go into the wilderness to live out this, this dream of a Thorovian existence and raise children out there just seems, seemed to me incredibly brave um, and, and interesting. So, so I went. And, and their lives were, were profoundly different from mine. I, I grew up in Fairbanks, which, you know, is the farthest north city in America. It's cold and dark in the wintertime, but it's, but it's a city with all the amenities of a city. One of your specialties is travel writing. I feel like that space has exploded with the birth of the travel blogger, and it seems like everyone's documenting their adventures abroad. So what makes a good travel story? That's a great question. Again, that a willingness and and a and a talent, the tools for turning yourself into a character so that the readers understand who it is who's going out and experiencing um, a, a place that's not home. Detail matters. Detail is the best and only antidote to sentimentality. You mm-hmm. know this, I'm sure, as a, as a writer yourself. Uh, the, the, the more specific and detailed you are, the, the richer the experience for the reader who gets to experience a place through the five senses that matters not just sights and sounds, but also what does a, what does a place smell like? Um, what does the food taste like? How warm is the air? How cold is the air? All those details really, really matter. Also, the voices of the people who live there matter. I require my students on the London study group to, um, e- each of them has to choose a London neighborhood and write a, a detailed portrait of this London neighborhood. And the best ones, of course, include interviews with people, people who live there, all the way from, you know, people who work in businesses, own businesses, are dropping their kids off at school, but also uh, the the um, artists on the, uh, outside the National Gallery who, who are, um, you know, making art for money, homeless people, that, that, that's, that they make the stories so much richer. Oh, what a fun project.
So you've worked with thousands of students and amateur and professional writers throughout your tenure. I'm curious, are there some people that um, can't be taught to write? Like, is it just that they don't have it, whatever it may be? Or can that be taught? Certainly there is a range of abilities. And I want to say that even though I have taught that many students, I'm really struck by how many I have taught in my in my years here at Colgate and before, um, I am often surprised. I'm often surprised by how much a student can do in revision. Mm-hmm. I'm often surprised by and disappointed in the ways that a student who who shows a lot of promise at the beginning can can fizzle out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also often surprised by. Again, how much how much a student can grow in the course of a semester. So often my snap judgments are completely wrong. One of the most talented students I've taught in all my time at Colgate, and there have been a lot of really great students, and many of them have gone on to graduate programs in creative writing. One of the most talented students I taught was a redshirt hockey player who was um, – I think he was a political science major. I don't think he took an English course um, in the his first few years at Colgate at all. Took creative writing as a lark and and did a, just absolutely mind blowingly oh. great work. So so you, you definitely can't uh, can't predict based on a student's background, sure. gender, yeah. how how brilliant they're going to be. The only other thing to say about this is that the the people who can write are the readers. Mm. You can tell almost instantly whether someone has language and the and and has language is a is a phrase I use to myself. It's a, it's a kind of code for that this is a reader. This is somebody who grew up reading books. At Colgate we have a core curriculum, which is a series of courses that students complete by their sophomore year that helps to develop fundamental skills and habits of mind that are essential for success in college and beyond. Faculty that teach core classes often approach each subject through the lens of their own academic expertise. You teach one of those core courses titled The Challenges of Modernity. What is it and how do you approach it from a background in English? Oh my gosh, I was so daunted by that course when I came to Colgate. I thought, ah, I can't, I can't do this. I haven't even read some of these authors, and a handful of them I had read, but not, not since my college days. Challenges of Modernity is a, is a course essentially in the in the great ideas that emerged between 1850 and, and and roughly 1940. Although we're allowed to choose texts that come closer to the present moment, the, the sort of great transformative ideas that mostly um, happened in, in Europe and America. It's geographically limited in ways that certainly people can argue with, but, but that's the, the, these, are, these are great, mostly European, but also American thinkers. Uh, Darwin, uh, Nietzsche, Marx, Virginia Woolf, Freud, um, artists like Picasso, music, film. Um, in recent years, we've used um, Pontecorvo's Battle of Algiers in, in that course. 
I, I have, I have, I went to it with with great trepidation, kicking and screaming, really reluctant, and and kind of, I just frankly terrified that I, I, that I couldn't do it. That frankly, that my students might know more than I knew, oh. <laughs> and I, I have come to love it. And the material that I teach in that course has become really important to my own. Writing Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own is absolutely key to the work that I'm doing now. Also, mm. Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morality and also um, the adv Advantages and Disadvantages of History for Life has been hugely useful to me. I've occasionally been able to make use of, of books and authors who've come for the Living Writers series, such as Mohsen Hamid. I teach The Reluctant Fundamentalist as a as a text to be read in conversation with the Battle of Algiers. So that's hugely fun. I think that the students who take Core 152 with me say that it's um, more text-based than other people's versions because I'm an English professor. Mm -hmm. I make no apologies for that. <laughs> I think close and careful reading of text is a really, really important and valuable skill. And um, I think they get a little bit better at doing it. Uh, in the spring of 2021, you'll be leading Colgate's London English Study Group. What do you most look forward to sharing with students on that trip? I love I love that trip. I love being in London with students. This will be my fourth time. Um, I love I love sharing the city of London with them, which is just you know fabulous, rich vibrant international city that could not be more different from Hamilton, New York, which is not to cast any aspersions on Hamilton, New York, but it's that's just a wonderful sort of counterpoint to their three and a half years in this place. As I mentioned earlier, I asked them, each of them, to to take ownership of a London neighborhood, to choose a London neighborhood that appeals to them for some reason. If they're particularly interested in the arts, that might suggest one place, or the outdoors, that might suggest another. Um, so that that's, that's kind of fun to work with them on figuring out what part of London they might like to do their research on. Um, I've always done this trip in a way that focuses on travel writing. But in the past, we've we've visited um, mostly sort of more touristy sites around England and and Scotland. We've gone to Edinburgh and St Andrews. We've gone to um, Wordsworth's home in the Lake District. We've gone to cathedrals, Canterbury and Salisbury. We've gone to Dover. I'm not going to do that this time, partly because I feel like, okay, I've seen these places three times. Also, the students can go there on their own. Um, I have, uh, in conversation with off-campus study, study, I have, in conversation with off-campus study, devised a group that will focus on mountains, moors, and sea. So we will go do some climbing. We'll climb Mount Helvellyn. We'll go to the Suffolk coast and walk along the trail that um, W.G. Sebald um, walked for the, his book, The Rings of Saturn. We'll go to the Devon coast where Paul Theroux went in writing Kingdom by the Sea. Um, the Lake District, by the way, the part that we'll explore by climbing Helvellyn is um, on Bill Bryson's itinerary in his book, Notes from a Small Island. So we'll 
we'll follow in the footsteps of some great nonfiction writers writing about England, but we'll also go to places that are more off the beaten path. And it's funny you mentioned climbing because I hear that what, this spring you're going to be headed to Everest Base Camp. I know. I'm so excited so about tell this. Tell me about this. <laughs> I'm so excited about this trip. <laughs> I've never, I've never been to Nepal. I've, I've always been fascinated by Everest. I'm really, really fascinated by climbing narratives, um, for all sorts of reasons. Of course, they have great, great drama. Always great drama. Great suspense and drama. Also, I love the, I love the spats between climbers. I love. I love like a great climbing narrative that then produces a counter narrative. <laughs> you know, people will you know make themselves the heroes of their own climbing trip and somebody else the villain, and then the villain will write a book. Tension. It's super, yeah. super fun. I'm not a climber myself, but I, I do adore these narratives. I am uh, going in the spring. On a trip, I'm going to accompany a group from Syracuse University led by my friend Tom Brutzart, who's head of the exercise science department there, he studies, uh, he studies genetic adaptation to high altitudes. Mm. So his group of students will mostly be doing research, um, focusing on scientific aspects of climbing. My group will be um, thinking about writing and how you write about the sublime, exotic, far-flung place that is also fraught and, um, you know, in the, in the news in all sorts of, sort of scary and unfortunate ways. The, it's, Everest is over, over-touristed, overcrowded. Trash is a huge problem. Climate change um, is, is affecting Mount Everest. Um, there have been allegations of corruption. There were all the deaths last year of people who ended up waiting in line to go to the summit and ran out of oxygen. We are not climbing Everest. We're going to fly into Kathmandu, then fly to Lukla, which is at 8,500 feet, and then we'll trek to Mount Everest Base Camp, which is at 17,000 feet. So pretty big elevation gain. Over, over the course of a few weeks. If you weren't leading the London study group uh, or headed to base camp at Everest, would you take a group to Alaska? And if so, what would you want them to see? Or if not, why not? I'm not sure I would take a group to Alaska. That's an interesting question. I would have mixed feelings about taking students to Alaska. I often have mixed feelings about taking anybody to Alaska, friends or, or um, partners, anybody else, because, again, it's a, it's a place with so much mythology around it. Maybe everybody feels like, like this. Maybe people from Indiana feel like their hometown is or their home state is also shrouded in in. In myths, people have so many ideas about Alaska that sort of breaking through the ideas to the reality can be kind of tricky. And I'm also, I also feel protective of it in some way. I'll tell you a really quick story about about it. Some years ago, um, my then husband and I picked up some relatives of his from Nebraska at the airport on a June evening, and we took them to. 
Pike's Landing, which for Fairbanks is a pretty nice restaurant on the banks of the Chena River. It was 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, right near the summer solstice, bright daylight. I mean, at that time of year, you never turn on your car headlights at, at any time. It's, it was beautiful. The sun was shining. The river was gorgeous. Um, it, was, it was warm. There were no mosquitoes. I remember this is just about as, as idyllic as Fairbanks ever gets. And we were having beer with these relatives from Nebraska, and... I said, so what do you think? And my husband's uncle said, trashy little berg, isn't it? Oh. <laughs> and I thought, well, it's my trashy little berg for one thing. But I, I felt, I honestly felt like somebody had insulted my child. Sure. So I feel, so on the one hand, I want to look at Alaska with clear eyes and I want other people to look at it with clear eyes, but I also want to protect it from their clear-eyed vision. My parents have a place in McCarthy in the Wrangell-St. Elias Mountains, um, so not Denali Park, not the most touristed part of the state, and not near the water, um, but it's very, very beautiful. The Wrangell-St. Elias National Park has nine of North America's 16 highest mountains in it. It is a, it is a, a gorgeous, gorgeous place, and if I had a group of students who I really liked. I would probably take them to McCarthy, Alaska to see, and you know, a, a part of the state that um, is, is not seen by nearly as many visitors and is still just heart-stoppingly beautiful. And that was 13. Wonderful. Thank you for chatting with us today, Professor Bryce. And also thanks to Colgate student Kate Norton, a member of the class of 2020, who helped a bit with the research for this episode. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast and let us know how we're doing. Email 13 at colgate.edu, that's 13 the number, with your thoughts or ideas, and let us know if you have any questions you'd like to have answered. I'm sure we can find someone to help out. Have a wonderful week and keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.